So welcome to Sunday school. Amen. Micah chapter two. It's always a blessing to see you here as we continue marching through Micah. Last week we started chapter two. We'll pick up where we left off after reading verses one through 11. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man in his house, even a man in his heritage. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, against this family do I devise an evil, from which ye shall not remove your necks, neither shall ye go haughtily, for this time is evil. In that day shall one take up a parable against you and lament with a doleful lamentation and say, We be utterly spoiled. He hath changed the portion of my people. How hath he removed it from me? Turning away, he hath divided our fields. Therefore thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. Prophecy ye not, say they to them that prophecy. They shall not prophecy to them that they that they shall not take shame. O thou that are named the house of Jacob in the spirit of the Lord, is the spirit of the Lord straightened? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly? Even of late my people is risen up as an enemy. Ye pull off the robe with a garment from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. The women of my people have ye cast out from their pleasant houses, from their children have ye taken away my glory forever. Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest. Because it is polluted, it shall destroy you, even with a sore destruction. If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of his people. So we covered verse 1 last week where we saw the premeditation of Israel's iniquity, that they would at night devise what wicked they wanted to do the next day. And as soon as it was first light, they were ready to put their plot into practice. And there's no shame in that, I think is kind of the picture, that we will devise wickedness and we will execute this in the light of day no fear of God in what they're doing and the Bible says they could do that because it was in the power of their hand to do so and that was really kind of the emphasis last week was God has given us power to do things and we have to choose how we're going to use the power that God has given into our hand are we going to use it for wickedness or for righteousness it's God's sovereign will to give us a free will and that's a wonderful thing. God didn't just want robots to worship Him, but He wanted uh, people with hearts that would have to make a decision to want to be with Him. And God will not force us to do right or wrong. It's in the power of our hand to choose what we're going to do, whether we want to live right or not. And so we have to learn to bring ourselves into subjection. For this morning, I want to look at verse 2. And I intended to get further, but as I was studying this, I got kind of hung up here. And I'll just warn you ahead of time, I'll, I'm inadvertently, as I was doing this, we'll read, I'll read a lot of passages this morning. 
So we see in verse 2 that God was angered at them for the oppression of their neighbors. There are several Hebrew words in the, in the Old Testament that are translated to the English word oppress and the various forms of the word oppress. I think we probably would most often think of oppression, being oppressed, as we find it first used in the Bible in Exodus, describing how the Egyptians treated the Hebrews. And, and we see there, God said that He saw the oppression wherewith the, the Egyptians oppressed them. God saying, I saw their affliction. I saw them being, uh, being used, being pressed upon sorely. He saw them being afflicted in all forms of the word oppress by virtue of how it's spelled. It has the idea of being pressed upon, oppress. And, and, and that's in probably every definition almost that, that, I, that I looked up through the, the Hebrew words. But we see that, and we do see here in verse 2, that there is violence associated with this oppression. They covet fields and they take them by violence. And so the manner in which they were taking the houses and the lands was, uh, was also through violence. But this word for oppress, it means to defraud. And, and that's the emphasis of this word. It has been translated into English as deceived, deceitfully gotten, defraud, defrauded, to do them wrong, drinketh up, that doeth violence, and of course all the various forms of the word oppress. And so in this context, it's talking about when it says that they oppressed them, they were defrauding through deceit. And, and, and to defraud somebody, God has a big problem with that as we're going to see. Back when we went through the book of Hosea, we saw how God is angered at those who defraud others. Remember that Micah and Hosea's ministries overlap. They were prophesying for the same time for a period. And they were giving the same message as well, of course, because they were getting it from God. But God said to the house of Israel through the prophet Hosea in Hosea 12:7, He is a merchant. The balances of deceit are in his hand. He loveth to oppress. And there's the connection between deceit and oppression. And what they would do is they would use false balances in order to get gain wrongfully. And they would have it to where it would say to the, the customer, if you will, uh, you owe me. Um, it would tell them what they owed was right. But when you weighed it out, it ended up getting them more than they should have gotten. And so they were getting money through deceit. People were overpaying for things. The balance itself may have been correct, but they could also use false weights that, would, um, that were labeled incorrectly. It was all a means to make more money. And I found it interesting when I was studying this term false balance that today it's, it's used to refer to media bias. Uh, that was interesting to me. I, I thought, wow, because I just typed in false balance and I was hoping I would just get all this cool information. And all I got was, <laughs> all I got was how it's, it's connected to media bias today. They call it both sideism. 
both sideism. I found that interesting. Examples of that would be the, the so-called climate change debate or, or the evolution versus intelligent design debate. And, and the idea is that it's all smoke and mirrors because we're making it look like we're giving equal attention to both sides of the argument, but we're really not. And, and it was called a false balance. So I found that interesting that it was, it's used today as deceit in media. It is obvious for those of us who are, you know, common sense. But for the rest of you, uh, no. <laughs> and, and anyway, I, that's, that's a good way to get people to come to Sunday school. Um, anyway, I have absolutely no point whatsoever in telling you what I found out about media bias. I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. I spend a lot of time doing <laughs> Now, back to the biblical false balance. The getting of gain by deceit. I want to give you a background uh, on this so you can see why defrauding another is what is angering God in this passage. In Leviticus 19, you don't have to turn to these, but please listen. In Leviticus 19, verses 35 and 36, it says, "...ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment, in meat yard, in weight, or in measure." Just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen shall ye have. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 13 through 16, it says, Thou shalt not have in thy bag diverse weights, a great and a small. Thou shalt not have in thine house diverse measures, a great and a small. But thou shalt have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure shalt thou have, that the days that thy days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. For all that do such things and all that do unrighteously are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. God said if you're going to use deceit to get gain, if you're going to defraud, that's an abomination to Him. And that's what He's angry about here in Micah. Part of, part of the reason why he's angry. God commanded them when they came out of Egypt in Leviticus, don't do it. And then before they were going to go into the land in Deuteronomy, God repeats again, don't do it. Don't use deceit. Proverbs 11.1 1 says, A false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. Proverbs 20 and verse 10 says, Diverse weights and diverse measures, both of them are alike abomination to the Lord. And then Proverbs 20 verse 23 says, Diverse weights are an abomination unto the Lord and a false balance is not good. God makes it absolutely clear in His Word that He's against us getting gain through deceit, through defrauding somebody, through sketchy business deals, through uh, strange contracts and all these things. And if you've ever been defrauded, you know how that feels. And hopefully you don't get the attitude of getting bitter where you want to take advantage of somebody else to get that back. And I've, I've been defrauded, and, and it's, it's a hard thing to deal with, but I had to make a decision, do I want a good name or not? And so you have to just wrestle with some of that sometimes. Later in the book of Micah, we'll read in, in Micah chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is abominable? 
Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with the bag of deceitful weights? So God's going to address it again in this book. Uh, I don't like the fact that you guys are being deceitful, that you're defrauding your neighbors, you're defrauding uh, people, you're making money through deceit, you're not laboring. And God has a problem with that. God is so serious about the matter of defraud and deceit that it's one of the main reasons He's giving here that they're going to go into captivity. Here's the testimony of the prophet Samuel before the people of Israel. This is found in 1 Samuel 12, 3-5. It says, Behold, here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before His anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose ass have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or of whose hand have I received any bribe to blind mine eyes therewith? And I will restore it to you. And they said, Thou hast not defrauded us, nor oppressed us, neither hast thou taken aught of any man's hand. And he said unto them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that ye have not found aught in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. That word defrauded there in 1 Samuel 12 is the same Hebrew word translated oppress here. And so when, when Samuel says, who have I defrauded? And they said, well, nobody. And it's the same as, as this oppress. And I want to tell you, followers of Christ, we are to live above reproach. We are not to be labeled with the shady business dealings that take place. And, and, and you know this to be true, but there are those who think that business will be helped if I put a, a quote-unquote Jesus fish on my business card. I see this well, a lot back south. Um, you know, if you're not Christian, we're not doing business with you, so we're going to put a cross, we're going to put a Jesus, we're going we're gonna to do something that makes you think we're a Christian businessman so that we can get your business. And as a result of that, we're people who will false advertise what they are, and they end up sticking it to you, well, now who gets the bad name? All of us as a whole, right? Even though we didn't really do anything wrong, but now we're being labeled as the troublemakers because, well, I did business with a Christian guy before and he just left the project undone or whatever. My, my parents recently, they were putting on this addition to their porch and he ended up just not finishing it, but took the money. And he was a, a quote-unquote Christian business guy. And so... We end up taking the blame for that. And there are many who, who claim the name of Christ, but they have left a sour taste in the mouths of others through defraud, through deceit. And this, this body here, known as Liberty Baptist Tabernacle, needs to be known as credible people. Right? I can't help it what the other church does. I can't help it if somebody else really just does somebody wrong and defrauds them. But this body, may it never be said that we have shady businessmen, shady businesswomen, that somehow we're out to take advantage of people. And that may come because we can't control some of the stuff people say. But we need to be above reproach is what I'm saying. We're, we're God's people. Remember Proverbs 22, 1, it says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. And loving favor rather than silver and gold. We, we should want a good name above getting an increase the wrong way. And, and listen, some people, they get tempted to defraud God in the process. And they say, well, I really, I really need this. 
Where can I get the money from? I just won't give to the Lord this, this month. And we end up defrauding God. That's what Malachi is about. And so we have to be careful. We can we cannot defraud people, but we can defraud God. You know, the prophet Malachi said, um, God said through him, you know, where and have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. And so we have to be careful about this matter of defrauding because when we get in a pinch financially, we're going to be tempted to draw from different sources to, to get through that time. And, you know, it's, it's amazing how good God's been to us. And, and when I got out, I remember, you know, now, and I, please don't take this the wrong way. I'm just saying how good God's been. But now what, what we're able to give now is far more than we ever made when I first started working in life. And that's amazing to me that God's been that good to us. And it's only through his provision. But there were times when, when I was medically discharged, I remember thinking, how are we going to make it? And I would look at that tithe check and I'd write out our tithes and our missions. I'd say, Lord, I really could use that. And I'd say, no, I don't want God mad at me. And you say, well, that's not the proper motivation. Well, that's what motivated me at the time. And I remember I just, I, I just give, I'd give to the Lord. And he always met our need. And, and I say that just to brag on God. He's always met our need. You just stay faithful to God. Now, what is it which led them to oppress and defraud through deceit and violence? Why were they taking fields and houses? Well, we see in the beginning of verse 2 that they were covetous. They were covetous. Those who were guilty of violating the 10th commandment. Exodus 20.17 says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. To covet is to delight and desire something inordinately to the point that we lust after it. We, we've got to have something. And it's, it's often, as listed there in Exodus twenty seventeen, it's often something that it's not lawful for us to have to begin with. Not always the case, but oftentimes that is the case. In the case of our text here, they were coveting houses and lands. What, what's the key in this that makes this so abominable to God in the fact that they're coveting these houses and lands? And the reason why this is a problem is because the end of verse 2 there says it was man's heritage. It was his inheritance. That's what a heritage there is. A family's inheritance was given by God and it was never intended to permanently switch hands. When they went into the land and they, they divvied out the, the borders, it was belonging to that tribe and then it would uh, be within a family's possession. And God intended that to stay that way. Th this will be a little lengthy. I have a couple of lengthy things to read, but just stay with me. Leviticus 25 verses 23 through 31 say, the land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine. For ye are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession, ye shall grant a redemption for the land. If thy brother be waxen poor, and hath sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. And if the man have none to redeem it, and himself be able to redeem it, then let him count the years of the sale thereof and restore the overplus unto the man to whom he sold it, that he may return unto his possession. But if he be not able to restore it to him, then that which is sold shall remain in the hand of him that hath bought it until the year of Jubilee. 
And in the jubilee it shall go out, and he shall return unto his possession. And if a man sell a dwelling house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold. Within a full year may he redeem it. And if he be not and if it be not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the walled city shall be established forever to him that bought it throughout his generations. It shall not go out in the jubilee. And just to clarify here, so talking about the land, year of jubilee, it goes back to the original owner. If you are living in the wall, inside the wall, uh, you're out of luck. But it goes on to say, But those houses of the villages which have no wall around about them shall be counted as the fields of the country. They may be redeemed, and they shall go out in the jubilee. So God had a system in place that if a man had to sell any of his possession because he had come upon hard times, there was a system in place where they could get that back. And, and they could buy that back. They could have a, a, like a kinsman redeemer be a part of that. And the year of Jubilee, every 50th year, they would have to return the possessions back to the original owners. Numbers 36 Verses 7 through 9 say, So shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel remove from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter that possesseth an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be wife unto one of the family of the tribe of her father. She wasn't to marry outside of the tribe, that the children of Israel may enjoy every man the inheritance of his fathers. Neither shall the inheritance remove from one tribe to another tribe. But every one of the tribes of the children of Israel shall keep himself to his own inheritance. God wanted it to remain as it was divvied out. And you can see how important this is in the eyes of God. This is why he had a problem with them coveting another man's field because they were coveting his heritage, his inheritance from God. And, and this is why God has a problem with this. And in Micah's day, they were defrauding people out of their inheritance. Deuteronomy 19.14 says, Thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. The landmark is what marked the borders of the, of the different portions of the land. Those are the landmarks. And they were not to be removed. The inheritance was to remain as it was initially inherited. Deuteronomy 27, 17 says, Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. And then Proverbs 23, verses 10 through 11 says, Remove not the old landmark, and enter not into the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is mighty, he shall plead their cause with thee. The, the Redeemer was allowed to come in and purchase that if possible. And so the Bible is clear don't, move, don't remove the old landmarks, leave the, the portions alone. And to give you an idea of what Micah was preaching against, there's a very good example of this in the Bible, and, and you might want to turn to this one because it's going to be lengthy. 1 Kings chapter 21 is where we find exactly the kind of thing that Micah is preaching against. And if you're able to listen intently as I read through several verses, then that's fine. But I'm going to turn there and read verses 1 through 16 of 1 Kings Chapter 21, it says, And it came to pass after these things that Naboth 
the Jezreelite, had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, hard by the place of Ahab, king of Samaria. So remember, Samaria is the northern ten tribes. That's the capital of the northern ten tribes of the house of Israel. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house, and I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it. Or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. Well, this sounds pretty good so far, right? Somebody were to come to my house and offer me a little bit more than it was worth, I'd probably take it because I'm that guy. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid it me that should give the inheritance. Did I miss a word there? Yeah. And Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. You know, Naboth's in here going, man, I could make some money, but God said not to. God said, I'm not to do this. This is my inheritance. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned, his, turned away his face and would eat no bread. Somebody needs a whooping, amen? <clears throat> I'm just not a fan of timeout. But anyway, um, he's got the poochy lip here. And, you know, he, he's walking around. He's a sad sack. But Jezebel, his wife. Wives, you have so much power. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? And he said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. And that's interesting. He doesn't fully quote the reason why. He just says he's not going to give it to me. No, Naboth said, I can't give it to you because it's the inheritance of my fathers. And Jezebel, his wife, said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Aren't you the big dog? Arise and eat bread. Let thine heart be married. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth on high among the people and set two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him that he may die. And the men of his city, even the elders and the nobles who were with the inhabitants in his city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them, and as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. And there came in two men, children of Belial, and sat before him. And the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. And they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money. For Naboth is not alive but dead. And it came to pass when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. 
That's what Micah's preaching against. That's a good example of what's going on. You can go back to Micah 2. But that account in 1 Kings 21 is, is a good example here of verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Jezebel, the wife of the, uh, of the king, King Ahab, no, no Christian ought to name their daughter Jezebel. There might be some. I don't know. There might be some. But um, she's wicked. Man, she's wicked. And, and Ahab was wicked. And anyway, she, she devised iniquity. Isn't that what Micah said? They, they devise iniquity upon their bed. And she devised this iniquity. She has a plan and she puts it in motion. And she used deceit to acquire what was never lawful for Ahab to possess in the first place. And that's what Micah's talking about here. Just so you know how critical this is in the eyes of God. They took a man's heritage through deceit and then through violence. And it was all because Ahab coveted what was never his to have. Covetousness. Naboth's field was his inheritance from his fathers, from the Lord. The prophet Isaiah, who is a contemporary of Micah, remember Micah to many is considered a miniature version of Isaiah. In Isaiah 5 verse 8, it says this, Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. And, and the meaning there in Isaiah is those who already had their possession sought to keep increasing their property by taking advantage of the poor. Remember, there was ways to redeem it back. And it, it wasn't that God was against the poor saying, I, I, I've, I've got to get through this, this hard time to mortgage the land in some capacity so long as it was returned back in the year of Jubilee and or bought back as God had prescribed. And the picture there is that nothing else would be left because they're joining field to field. And, and this one person's property would become enormous as a result. And we see this throughout the West. Um, we, we've seen it in our state. Once upon a time, there was a lot more ranches on the prairie. And I like to drive when I have time on Mondays, which has been rare lately, but drive, and I like to go east, because I already live east of the base, I like to go east out on the prairie and listen to sermons, and you'll come across these old churches that are just standing there, they're not being used. And you can tell where it used to be a community there. And the community has pretty much dried up because there's no more people there. There's, there's these big ranches there. As I thought about this thought here, the, the larger successful ranches could buy out the smaller, least less successful ranches, and the ranches would just get bigger and bigger. We, I'm just trying to give you an illustration of what Isaiah was talking about. And, uh, and, and I don't want you to get me wrong. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm all for capitalism, whatever. If, if I could, I would buy the entire state of South Dakota, kick you all out, put a wall around it, um, a moat, crocodiles, electricity, you know, velociraptors, whatever I got to do to keep you out, I would do that, but um, I'll never have the money to do that. And then I'd have to just tear down a lot of stuff. It'd just be too much work. So I'll just stay where I'm at. <laughs> anyway. Um, anyway, where am I at? So as a result, many places which no longer have a, uh, they no longer have the population they had of yesteryear out there on the, on the plains. 
up there in Harding County, the population in 1910 was 4,228. But in the 2010 census, 100 years later, it was 1,249. And every 10 years, it, it went down except for one. The population just keeps decreasing. And uh, the reason I know this, you may think, well, that's a stupid thing to pull out of your hat. Years ago, when I did want to buy all of South Dakota and kick everybody out, we, Adrian and I found a piece of property up there that I wanted to live on. And I think it was 160 acres or 164 or something like that. And we went up there to look at it. Oh, it's just a gorgeous piece of property. I made the mistake of looking at it when I was studying this, and, and I had to remember what God's will is for my life. And um, <clears throat> we went out there to look at this property, and the rancher, it, it, was, it was located inside of a larger ranch. And the rancher came out, and I won't give his name. It, it, anyway, he's got a huge ranch. And he came out, and he approached me. I don't know if you were still in the car or what was happening then, but he came out, and he approached me, and he was just nasty. And he made it clear, you're not buying this property. And I was just really taken aback because I'm just some hill, you know, I was just in my 20s. I was just a hillbilly. I'm, I'm out there in my overalls, you know. And he was just very confrontational about it. And I thought, good night. Maybe I don't want to live here. I don't want to get shot. And uh, in, anyway, his ranch is over 15,000 acres now. And And what was interesting in that is when he came out and he started to be threatening, he was choking out all the smaller ranches. The, the guy who owned it lived in Montana, and the rancher said, I'll give you this much for the property, which was well below value. He told me how much he was offering the guy. And I was willing to pay twice that because it was still a good deal. But he was so threatening to people that nobody would buy it. And he ended up getting that ranch for next to nothing to add to his already large ranch. That's the kind of thing here I'm talking about in Micah is you start through coercion, forcing people out so that you can increase your inheritance. Now, in America, there's nothing wrong with that as far as legally. Um, but in Bible days, that inheritance was from God, and God didn't want that messed with. So I just wanted to give you that example. I thought it was pretty interesting. Even after the captivity of Judah, Israel continued to have issues with this. It was always a problem throughout much of their history, you can read a similar account in Nehemiah chapter 5 when because there was a drought in the land, people were mortgaging their lands in order to buy corn and buy food. And they were starting to charge interest, the, the people who were able to mortgage those lands and, and front the money. They were charging interest. And God hates interest. He's absolutely clear about it. And in the Bible, in, in your King James Bible, it's called usury. And, and God's against that. And, and so they were borrowing money against their lands and their vineyards. They were also borrowing money not only for food, but they had to pay taxes to the king of Persia who had let them go out of captivity. And they were being left with nothing to be able to one day redeem that land back, as I was talking about earlier. And it angered Nehemiah. And he went to the nobles and the rulers, and he said, you've got to stop this interest. It's not right. He told them to leave off the usury, and then Nehemiah 5.11 says, Restore, I, I pray you to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money, and the corn, the wine, and the oil, and that ye exact uh, of them. And so, Nehemiah is saying, you, you, you're using this wrong, you're, you're covetous. You're trying to take through deceit and defraud, and, and how many... 
you military guys will, will know this, especially outside of a lot of the bases where training takes place are these loan shark places. Now, we'll give you a loan. They don't tell you it's going to be 300% interest. It got so bad that states were now, are now passing laws that you have to cap the interest at like 35% or something like that because they were charging hundreds of percent on loans. They were taking advantage of young airmen, uh, young military. And so it's just a problem, this interest thing. But covetous is never good. Amen. It gets really ugly when a nation's leadership is covetous, as it was in Nehemiah's day. And that's why God commanded, if you're going to appoint leaders, which you're going to, when you appoint those people in leadership, it needs to be somebody who hates covetousness. The Bible says in Exodus 18.21, Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and have placed such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And so I spent all this time just to highlight how serious God is about this matter of coveting a man's inheritance, a man's heritage. That's why God's upset. We might look at that and say, well, what's the big deal? Don't mess with a man's heritage. Amen. Um, I don't want to give you any, any more examples there. But it was a problem throughout Israel's history. Now, the lesson for us this morning is be content. Don't covet. Be content. When we are not content, we're on the path of covetousness, violating the Tenth Commandment. In the days when John the Baptist was baptizing, some publicans came to him to be baptized, and they asked John, Master, what shall we do? And John told the publicans, these tax collectors, exact no more than that which is appointed you. In other words, stop defrauding people. You're lining your pockets by getting more money than was exacted. Some soldiers also came to John the Baptist in that account, and they asked, what shall we do? And John said to the soldiers, do, do violence to no man. Well, that's part of what was listed here. And then he goes on to say, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Well, I had to hang on to that in my enlisted days, amen. Be content with your wages. <laughs> we, we came across a, what was it like an old checkbook ledger? <laughs> I don't know why we had that thing, but it was from 1996. And uh, I was like, man, we were just as broke then as we are now, but, <laughs> but we weren't making any money then. It was so funny to see that. Be content with your wages um, is what they told the soldiers. But both of those examples that John the Baptist told the publicans and the soldiers sound an awful lot like what Micah is saying here in, in verse 2, verses 1 and 2. So have you learned to be content in life? Life is in the matter of who has the most toys. I just get land with, with no covenants and just store it there, amen. <laughs> just kidding, I want to do that. Um, did I see the Elmores look at each other? Y'all got no covenants out there? <laughs> you got all snowmobiles and four-wheelers and stuff. Yeah, Amen. Um, we got an RV sitting in our driveway from the 90, 91, I think it is. That thing's an eyesore, but I love it. It's just sitting there. Uh, anyway, it's not about who has the biggest home, who has the nicest car, or who has the most money. But after Jesus talked about, or after that example of those people coming to John the Baptist, um, it goes on to teach us that we ought to be laying treasure up in heaven. Because everything on earth is temporal. It's going to belong to somebody else. Or it's going to burn up and rust and 
corrupt. Remember Solomon in Ecclesiastes? He's like, you know what's depressing to me is I've labored for all this and somebody else is going to get it. <laughs> so tear up all your stuff before you die. Amen. That's the moral of the story. I'm just kidding. In Luke 12, verses 13 through 15, somebody comes to Jesus and says, And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Now Jesus speaks to the crowd, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of of the things which he possesseth. I mean, it's wonderful that God blesses us to have things. I have a lot of wants. And that's just the goodness of God. All my needs are met. But I get some wants along the way as well. And, in, in, and again, the emphasis is, have you learned to be content? Um, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Take no thought for what clothes you need, what house you need, what food you need. Don't concern yourself, Jesus said, with the general needs of life. I'm going to take care of that. So long as we're doing our part. I mean, we have to labor and so forth. Jesus said, uh, uh, again, seek first kingdom of God. Why? Because Jesus said, I'm going to provide you all those things if you'll seek me. I'm going to take care of you. Luke chapter 12, verses 33 and 34, sell that you have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old. A treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Uh, Somebody once said, show me your checkbook and I'll show you where your heart is. Amen. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. So if, if you go through your checkbook ledger, it'll show you where your heart's at. Amen. I know people aren't comfortable talking about money, but Jesus did. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. (laughs) Pastor Holder used to say, I've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul on the back of it. You're not taking it with you. The rest of, of that verse 8 says, And having food and raiment, let us there... Let us be there with content. Do you have food today? Do you have clothing? Do you have a roof over here? Be content. Be content. Um, It's not about having the the finest things in life. Don't spend your life laboring for the world's riches. They're not going to last. Don't set your affections on things of the earth. Set your affections on things above. Just be content. There's something just peaceful about being content, isn't there? That I'm not in a keeping up with the Joneses mindset. I'm not concerned about who has a better car than I have. Um, Just happy that God has provided me a vehicle to get from point A to point B. Amen. Um, The ministry mobile. I can't wait to get it fixed. Wait till you see me rolling around in that thing. My Honda CRX, it's on. Anyway, Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, Paul uh, said, Not that I speak in respect of want, For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. And everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. 
Isn't it interesting in context what that verse actually refers to that we often quote? I can do all things through Christ. In context, it's saying, look, whether I'm up here or I'm down here, I, I can do it. I've learned to do that. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. And I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And here's the bottom line, and I know i got to close. The Lord is to be all we need in this life. David wrote in Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. Isn't that interesting? You know, he says, my heritage is God. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are falling unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. And that's the same kind of language about the land. And he's, re- he's making it applicable with God. Psalm 142, verse 5, I cried unto thee, O Lord, I said, thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. So I'd ask you as I close, is Christ all you need in this life? If you lost everything today, would Christ be enough for tomorrow? Lamentations 3, verses 22 through 24, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in Him. And if you understand that passage, they were going into captivity. The Babylonian captivity. That's why it's lamentation. They were weeping over that. And, and the prophet Jeremiah there says, uh, you know what, even though all this is disappearing, the Lord's mercies are new every day and that's all I need. All I need is the Lord. And so I hope you can say that this morning. Let's pray.